Welcome to this week's episode of our mini-series, Border Surveillance. I'm Edin Omanovic. Surveillance techniques and technology are proliferating around the world, causing largely untold and unknown damage to people by allowing governments to spy with few limits. The key to fighting this is understanding how these techniques are being spread in the first place and who has the power to help stop this and help keep their use in check. One of the most important players here is the European Union, which is the world's largest provider of aid, helps lift millions of people out of poverty and works to end conflict and empower communities in some of the most deprived places on earth. But there's also been dramatic change in recent EU policies, which has shifted away from things like providing humanitarian aid to also providing more and more security and military aid, which includes things like providing equipment and training to police and military forces, as well as surveillance technology and support to police across the world. One of the regions where this is most visible is in the Sahel in Africa, which is from European capitals and news agendas far away and is seldom talked about unless it's in the context of terrorism or migration coming to Europe. A recent parliamentary resolution called for more security cooperation explicitly citing the impact of the climate crisis and its potential to cause insecurity in a region where some 60% of people work in agriculture but where temperatures are rising one and a half times faster than in the rest of the world and where 80% of agricultural land has been degraded. This despite the fact that these countries are amongst the lowest emitters of carbon in the world. To better understand what's going on, what kind of surveillance and security aid the EU is providing and the impact of all of this, I spoke to Giacomo Zandonini, an Italian journalist who has spent years following these developments and was kind enough to share his incredible insight into all this. Enjoy. Thanks a lot for taking the time, Giacomo. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you very much, Eddie. How was your pandemic? Well, <laughs> I mean, like most of the, of the at least Western world, kind of. Yeah, I remember, obviously, we are in the UK and I remember Italy with Lombardy. It's kind of like at the forefront of the pandemic in Europe. That was like when shit really started to get real. Yeah. So are, are you are you able to travel then or have you been stuck in Rome? Initially, it was a, a bit hard because there was actually all my uh, reporting was linked to traveling. So yeah. everything was blocked. Yeah. And all that I've been doing in the past month before the pandemic erupted uh, was completely uninteresting for the media. I mean, <laughs> because, yeah, everything was pandemic. Uh, and uh, and uh, I've, I had worked uh, in Nigeria right before the lockdown and uh, on migrants deported from Europe. Uh, but yeah, it took about six months to get the story published. So what, what, how would you like describe the main kind of focus of your work and what kind of issues you're interested in yourself? Uh, actually, I've been working especially around topics uh, uh, that have to do with migration refugees. Uh, also because I have a background as a, a social worker and a community worker working with refugees in, uh, in, uh, in Italy. Uh, so that was quite natural and I had some knowledge about the issue. But then I, I mean, uh, I'm, I also expanded a bit this, uh, trying to look at 
uh, well, how European policies have been shaping uh, uh, migration, have been restricting migration, have been also creating uh, uh, a human rights emergency, let's say, over the past uh, six years for sure, but let's say the past 10 years at least. Um, and also this brought me to, to travel, especially to the Sahel, to Niger, where I've been uh, going uh, over the past five years quite often, um, and uh, and West Africa in general uh, became kind of my, uh, let's say, favorite place to look at this phenomenon, look at uh, European uh, cooperation over migration, look at the local impact uh, of these policies, and also uh, expand uh, uh, towards other type of uh, European uh, cooperation, uh, for example, a cooperation on security, which often overlaps with uh, uh, migration, and also a cooperation, uh, uh, well, on, on on border control, and, and the this type of interventions are really interconnected. So, so just honestly, for people like me, to so taking a step back, the Sahel that broadly represents like the, the region under the Sahara or? That's right. I mean, the Sahel, the name comes from the Arabic Sahil, which means the, the coast. So it's the southern coast of the Sahara Desert, basically. But now most of the time, so it's, it's a quite huge and long stretch of uh, semi-arid lands from the from west to eastern Africa, yeah. but now we refer to the Sahel most of the time with the definition which was taken from uh, the French uh, as a former uh, colonizers of the the so-called central and uh, western Sahel, which basically means the Chad, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, and Mauritania and Senegal, depending on the definition. So it's kind of more a political than a geographical one. Nice. So, so is France like, was that the dominant colonial power in its recent history or was there other countries? Did it, do all people speak French in the region? Or? Yeah, France was the colonial power. All these countries uh, that now we, we call the Sahel uh, were former French colonies, uh, were part of, uh, um, of the French colony of West Africa. Uh, with different names, different borders, and different uh, histories of decolonization. Uh, but yeah, uh, basically the, the presence and the influence of France uh, is still very strong and, uh, and debated and the source of conflict, uh, as we've been seeing in the past years over jihadist insurgencies in Mali, specifically military response by France and all uh, the even the European uh, policies surrounding this uh, counterterrorism uh, response. So, so, so when you're like a freelancer, and I guess you pitch stories to editors or they commission you, what kind of issues are they interested in covering? Mostly for like the international English-speaking media. Yeah, well, as you might well imagine, I mean, there's been a moment where migration was uh, interesting, and uh, especially in Niger, because Niger uh, was kind of on the top of the European agenda all of a sudden, after decades of uh, uh, 
of uh, I mean even not knowing exactly where the country was by most <laughs> Western media and uh, confusing it with Nigeria. Uh, but then uh, it, it popped up in 2016 uh, when it was difficult to control migration in Libya because of the conflict of not having a stable government and counterpart. Um, and so Niger was seen as a good partner to uh, prevent people from entering Libya because it's exactly south of Libya and most people from West African countries were transiting through Niger to reach Libya and then some of them would also try to uh, cross the Mediterranean Sea. <clears throat> but then uh, now the the migration story is a bit down, let's say. So what's on the top of the Western agenda, and this is also reproduced by the media, uh, is the jihadist uh, presence, uh, jihadist insurgencies, which are a very complex uh, uh, phenomenon involving local communities, involving uh, different local dynamics, which also date back to the colonial time. Uh, but what's most the, the most interesting angle is uh, uh, just uh, you know how Western powers are fighting uh, uh, jihadists, uh, how they're convincing them to uh, to abandon, uh, are convincing uh, fighters to abandon those groups, uh, uh, and this is all still the, the main story today. Then there's a quite recent trend towards. Uh, um, environmental stories and the Sahel is at the forefront of uh, uh, climate change uh, with uh, higher temperatures in an already really hot region uh, uh, over the past years, uh, natural catastrophes. So it's uh, it's also unfortunately a good setting for stories that show how climate change is impacting populations. I remember, I remember there was a EU parliamentary resolution passed last year which talked, I mean, the thing is they, they took this approach that talked about the effects of climate change and desertification, particularly on pastoral communities that were moving between borders, how then that might be driving uh, local grievances, how then that might be driving migration, and then just took an approach that basically said, we need to help the security forces keep control of this, because this is going to come back to us. So it seems as though like that relationship is very much characterised by how issues like migration or um, desertification can affect European countries. Are they mostly interested in things like migration and um, what they would perceive as global counterterrorism? Yeah, I would say the global counterterrorism agenda is shaping the Western intervention in the Sahel now. Yeah. Uh, even if uh, you know it's an area also of clash between different interests, we are seeing this now in Mali. Uh, where uh, as soon as France announced uh, they would start retiring their troops, quite slowly actually, uh, then uh, Mali uh, started discussing with uh, with Russia uh, on um, having uh, Russian mercenaries uh, on uh, on its territories to defend, uh, uh, to support at least. Uh, basically the elites, because uh, usually these mercenaries are not intervening in dangerous areas. They're just, you know, mm -hmm. defending uh, uh, the capital city and uh, trying to, you know, they're used as a sort of presidential guard, uh, like it's happening in the Central African Republic. And so it, it's an area of uh, 
where there are multiple interests now, but uh, basically the the idea which is uh, repeated continuously by European leaders that this is the few the, when they are also justifying the interventions in the Sahel is that what's happening in the Sahel as a reflection on Europe is not really proved, is not really verified by facts and by researchers, scholars, and uh, uh, that's no desire. Uh, I mean, spe- specifically when coming to terrorism, because uh, it's it's a really complex uh, uh, phenomenon, as I was saying. Uh, it's uh, intertwined with the local frustrations uh, by marginal groups, uh, which have been recruited, uh, um, and uh, and the same fact of having a Western intervention was seen as a motivation for many people to join uh, uh, violent uh, non-state alarmed groups. Uh, also, there is a colonial legacy which is strong and also influences uh, politics, uh, mobilization uh, by um, uh, by local uh, citizens. Uh, and it's seen specifically uh, as a as negative fact, kind of. And this is also something that uh, France has uh, to deal with now. Um, yeah, so uh, the the city counterterrorism uh, agenda is really on top of uh, Western interests. Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, then practically uh, what the what some media are failing to do is to also expose the uh, what are the interests uh, behind this uh, uh, this emphasis on counterterrorism. What are the you know the industrial groups uh, making money out of it? Uh, what are the drivers of these interests? Uh, and uh, and if and what are the real uh, impact of this intervention? This support to security forces, uh, every support to security forces on the ground. I, mean, I think it's very tempting for groups, I mean, locally in the, which the countries which you're focusing on, but also internationally, to kind of perceive very complex local dynamics and local drivers as part of a global narrative. So, you know, very complex regional and local um, conflicts being reduced to this global war on jihadism that then is part of a global thing. So you need to like force global action onto it when actually it's so much more complex than that in so many scenarios that we're seeing. Um, going back to the issue of migration, how what's the deal with Libya at the moment? Is that still what the European leaders see as like the the hotspot for migration when it comes to going to Europe or what's happening there at the moment? Well, uh, actually, the European intervention on migration in the Sahel, uh, which is focused on Niger, uh, has been somehow effective, but combined with lots of other interventions. Uh, Lots of people were arrested in Niger, in northern Niger specifically, uh, people that were connected to uh, organizing migrant travels across the Sahara Desert to Libya. And um, uh, there was a law criminalizing all this uh, type of activities that was uh, uh, adopted in 2015 uh, under European pressure and uh, under uh, European guidance. Um, There was uh, there were there was a set of uh, uh, 
you know, um, measures uh, uh, which uh, had to do also with the need uh, from the, by uh, the Nigerian need by the Nigerian elites to uh, have an international recognition, to have support from uh, external partners uh, in a difficult moment where uh, uh, internally uh, they were quite weak. I mean, the, uh, the party in power and uh, while now they consolidated kind of their power over the, even internally, I would say, uh, with also the recent elections in Niger. But if you look back at uh, six, seven years ago, the system was weaker and uh, they needed the, that sort of con of um, legitimization. And, uh, and migration was used also to obtain it, to attract some funding. But most of the funding from the EU uh, actually went to European actors. Uh, were NGOs uh, and, uh, and, well, let's say European and international actors. So NGOs, but basically the UN uh, system, UN agencies and uh, national uh, cooperation agencies uh, of European countries. Um, so uh, through this, they were able to reduce movements, northbound movements from Niger to Libya, uh, even if there's no real statistics. So uh, when you hear uh, European uh, politicians say, okay, we succeeded in uh, stopping migration to, to Libya, well, actually, uh, we don't know because the statistics are, the, are um, uh, I mean, the count of the people passing by in a remote desert uh, uh, trail, it's, it's, which is already very difficult to do, but it has been done in the past years, always in the same place, places, basically. So it means around police uh, checkpoints, somewhere close to a village in the desert. Uh, but what happened with this... Uh, uh, new policies is that uh, uh, people uh, were forced to uh, to take uh, longer and much more dangerous routes to avoid the checkpoints because they were arrested otherwise the drivers uh, would be arrested and uh, and the passengers would uh, be blocked and sent back and convinced to to stop the the travel um so, of course, people are avoiding all this control that were put in place also thanks to European money, um, uh, making the trip much more dangerous. So, uh, but there, there's also other elements, actually. Um, uh, cooperation with Libya has increased in the meanwhile, especially with the so-called Libyan Coast Guard. People are not able anymore to cross the Mediterranean. It's really difficult. Lots of people have been repeatedly pushed back in the Mediterranean. So uh, overall, uh, the you know this uh, uh, the, the possibility to reach uh, Europe entering through Italy uh, and then passing through Niger and Libya before uh, have reduced. So uh, lots of people have been choosing different ways, like going to the Canary Islands, uh, for example, over the past two years, uh, and trying uh, other ways to uh, to reach a safe place where they could walk, they could find safety. And You've seen that dynamic, like even in the channel. So like in the UK, we've got this kind of manufactured crisis at the moment of these channel boats and 
what they're doing again is exactly what you said, just making the journey more dangerous. So actually more lives are being lost and actually empowering like actual predatory smugglers because then they make a business out of because it's more complicated. There's no legal routes, there's no safe routes. So all that's going to inevitably do is empower the smugglers. And, you know, we've also seen it in various Mediterranean routes. Um, I think it's quite a powerful narrative for governments to say we're cracking down on these predatory smuggling groups. Was that what it was in Niger? Were, were these all like exploitative like smugglers out to essentially rip people off and endanger them, and harm them? Or were they, were they more complicated groups than that? Like, well, what, what was the actual effect of illegalizing smuggling, as they called it? There's a French researcher, Julien Brachet, who's been working in Niger for the past uh more than 10 years 12 years i would say <clears throat> and his um, observation his analysis is that smugglers have been created by europe basically in northern niger it, it's a long story because it's a story of progressively illegalizing movements uh, under a european uh, push um, and so this, uh, of course, you know, uh, brought to uh, much more dangers and also empowered the groups that were uh, uh, connected maybe to all to other types of trafficking, like weapons, like drug trafficking, uh, which were basically uh, not necessarily connected with people transporting migrants. Uh, but now what's happening is that uh, these uh, groups which have a stronger network uh, uh, and also potentially they, they can, uh, uh, you know, they have good relations with the local security forces in some cases, so they're able to pass by in uh, some checkpoints or uh, to avoid control. So they've been basically empowered. So it's uh, we can say on one side that European intervention uh, also fueled uh, uh, trafficking actually because uh, uh, it moved from a, a, an organized activity because you can say it wasn't organized with lots of people involved with uh, thousands of people in the region of Fagades in northern Niger that were working in the migration uh, business or industry uh, to transport, to feed, to uh, sell basic items to people uh, on the move. Uh, to drive, uh, of course, the drivers were a part of this, but then it was a hierarchic and structural system uh, where newcomers could maybe enter, but it was not so easy. Uh, and a very few people had contacts with the others that would, uh, in different parts along the migration uh, trail, uh, foreigners were involved, uh, for example, the, someone from Senegal at one point be that was stuck in uh, Niger at one point could become, uh, you know, uh, a part of this complex and uh, informal network by uh, trying to bring Senegalese in a specific uh, uh, place and uh, convince them to go with a specific driver to Libya. The, the crossing of the Sahara takes from three days to one week most of the times if there's no big problems uh, with your uh, vehicle. Uh, but uh, everything was kind of uh, happening uh, under the sun, uh, like uh, open, very openly up to 2016. Uh, you could travel from Magadez to uh, uh, midway to Libya 
uh, with a military escort, which was provided to all local citizens going to the Sahara of the desert uh, because uh, they were going for either gold mining, either for commercial activities, because there's some oasis also producing dates, uh, producing also salt. So, and also there are commercial links between uh, across the Sahara, between uh, Libya, Niger, and Chad. So the, the military was there to escort uh, basically everybody, including migrants. So it was kind of something happening and uh, something bringing money to local uh, uh, families uh, uh, and, uh, and not something, not a business that was uh, profitable only, you know, for the top uh, guys that were moving uh, uh, millions. Uh, no, it was something which was a uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, helping uh, local communities in Agadez to cope with, uh, with the difficulties of living in a desert town with a uh, scars uh, with little economic opportunities and uh, uh, all, all this system was destroyed in the span of a year between 2016 and 2017 because of European intervention then I mean you can't say of course it was dangerous in some cases uh, already uh, we had uh, you know uh, people were dying uh, in the desert uh, because it's dangerous trip uh, People are crammed uh, in pickups on the back of these pickups, like 20, 25, 28 people, uh, weather conditions are really bad. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, it was, you know, it was, there was kind of more control up to 2016. Uh, people were transiting, uh, passing on the main trail to Libya. Uh, which means if I have a problem with my vehicle and my passengers are under the sun and they finish their water, uh, which is very limited, like five liters for, the, for a few days in the desert, it's basically nothing. Uh, so if I have a problem, uh, probably, probably someone will pass by because anyway, there's a truck passing by bringing, carrying cigarettes or carrying fuel, uh, carrying whatever from Libya. Uh, to to Niger because Libya was a, uh, is a richer country. They kept importing goods even illegally for, to to Niger and other countries in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so uh, that was a uh, it, it was safer somehow even if accidents still happened. Uh, what happened is that now accidents are happening completely out of any radar. Uh, pro maybe satellites could detect uh, accidents, uh, and uh, but uh, they are not there for the or drones. Uh, from there are U.S. drones flying from northern Niger. There are French drones. There are uh, there are drones provided by Europe also to the local uh, um, uh, civil protection to. Uh, monitor uh, areas in northern Niger, even if they are small drones. I mean, it's not the big US drones. Uh, but yeah, they're not interested in looking uh, after uh, a migrant pickup, Toyota pickup stranded somewhere uh, between the dunes, let's say. Yeah, I mean, I mean that is the priority. It's people's lives, right? That That's leading to risk and, and that should always be at the forefront. Like, um, I remember reading, this seems to just get completely glossed over, but they had an agreement with the ECOWAS, the kind of regional economic community, that there would be free movement, right? And then 
this seems to have just come in and totally been like, well, our interest isn't in free movement, so we're just going to stop that. And also that a lot of communities were traveling across borders anyway, and then just basically had to stop. Yeah, basically, as as you said, as you said, there was an agreement. There is an agreement since uh, 1979 of free circulation in the economic community of Western African state, which Niger, which Sahel countries are part of, except from Chad. But Chad then has an agreement with Niger, uh, so it's kind of it's like a Schengen area in the EU with. Uh, uh, also other countries included so it's actually uh, for because of bilateral agreements so actually it's more than 15 uh, and you can travel around this area if you're a citizen of the ECOWAS just with your own ID there will be checks uh, in uh, at borders at planned borders uh, but you don't need a visa basically and you can stay for up to three months so similar rules than the EU but uh, this was uh, uh, enforced much uh, earlier than the Schengen area. Uh, so it's a quite ancient era of free circulation. And basically, this free circulation was reflecting the fact that people were moving a lot around uh, because of uh, their, uh, you know, basic uh, livelihoods. They were, uh, you know, uh, nomadic population, but not only people, you know, uh, uh, traders uh, and uh, uh, of all kinds uh, moving along uh, and this was vital for communities also because parts of these borders were designed uh, by colonial powers so they didn't reflect really the relation and the historical connections between communities between uh, trading areas between local resources and populations um, and um, uh, what's happening? Uh, well, with the case of Niger, uh, sort of uh, half of the country at one point, under European pressure, was cut out from this zone. So now if uh, if a Senegalese wants to travel to northern Niger, he can't do it, basically, uh, because the only way to access northern Niger is to, uh, to take a pickup or a truck uh, and go in the desert, because there's no... There's no tarmac route uh, road anymore. Uh, so, uh, but uh, it's legal basically because uh, the driver that that brings you would risk uh, spending years in prison. Uh, so it's not uh, legal. I mean, you can you uh, you could go there, but it's a bit difficult to go there alone. Uh, and uh, the potential uh, risk of migration. This is what is being addressed. Uh, I might be a Senegalese willing to reach Libya uh, and I can't take a plane for some reason, because, but I have my family in Libya. Well, uh, I, I can't travel through northern Niger to reach Libya in any way because uh, uh, I'm considered as a potential migrant to the European soil. And uh, yeah, and basically, broadly, on the, in the ECOWAS region, we can say that a European intervention is trying to shape local, uh, uh, you know, local uh, seasonary or migration movements that were connected to economic activities as uh, international migration. Uh, so introducing more border controls, 
convincing local governments that they need to increase border control, that they need to check people, that's for security reasons. So they're using mostly the security angle uh, to convince people also to, to convince governments to um, to monitor people, to uh, to take their personal information, to register um, uh, ID cards, to have biometric passports, to have biometric uh, voting cards, to have, uh, uh, you know, even when the civil, the normal civil status system is not completely set up, set up uh, and people are not registered at birth, still the, 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 they're trying to kind of go to three steps after that and say, okay, but you need to biometrically register people at borders, uh, even if, uh, you know, people, maybe children in some areas of the country don't even have a birth certificate and they can't access uh, basic uh, rights, maybe. So it's kind of this emphasis also shifted priorities from, you know, maybe integrating inclusion uh, uh, of local communities, uh, providing them with opportunities, uh, uh, which uh, reducing poverty, which on paper should be the, the priorities of, uh, you know, uh, international development cooperation, but then also it was kind of uh, diverted, diverted to uh, these uh, interventions, which are still considered as uh, development cooperation somehow, I mean, also technically, they are most of the time considered as development cooperation because, yeah, we are developing the, the police. We are giving them a best system to track down terrorists. But actually, they're recording uh, information by normal citizens passing through our border point. Uh, so you mentioned biometrics and some other kind of technology. I think you covered a lot of that in a report you put out recently with ActionAid. Um, what, what were the main findings? Like, what was that report covering? Well, the report for ActionAid was basically looking at uh, Italian uh, funds uh, following the Italian public money for uh, migration control in Africa and in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, so basically trying to track down uh, how much money Italy had spent, where, uh, where the money had been spent. Uh, in terms of uh, you know intervening uh, in migration uh, in Africa uh, in the Mediterranean and uh, uh, the so-called Central Mediterranean and uh, then in Africa uh, to what they say how they call it today is to manage migration, which most of the time is a technical way to say to stop migration basically <laughs> uh, and. Um, yeah, so, uh, well, uh, as uh, everybody is well aware of, it's really difficult to track down government money in any case to reconstruct um, uh, spending by different ministries, to reconstruct uh, uh, exactly who is uh, uh, implementing the projects and, and the likes. Uh, and in the case of Italy, uh, yeah, it, it has been a big amount of money which was integrated by European Union money, uh, kind of uh, specifically for some funds like the uh, European Union Trust Fund for Africa, so-called, which was adopted in 2015 and will last until uh, uh, this year. And uh, um, uh, in, uh, in, in this case, I mean, the... 
uh, yeah, there was a convergence of uh, Italian and European interests uh, in uh, uh, reducing migration, not only from Libya, but from more than 20 countries in, uh, in, uh, in Africa, mostly North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, which were interested somehow by the migration phenomenon uh, and the migration uh, uh, that was towards Europe, because uh, we are not interested at all in, in Nigerians moving to South Africa. That's uh, <laughs> not completely on the radars of European policymakers. You can also understand that, but at the same time, it's kind of when you want to intervene in migration policies, you need to think of a global phenomenon where uh, people are moving uh, uh, internally in a country, in, uh, in neighboring countries, in other countries, and in, inside Africa. Uh, and so it's it's kind of very reductive to, and uh, sometimes counterproductive to look at migration only when it's uh, potentially coming to, to Europe. And, and it's framed as the trust fund for Africa. And it's, I think, overwhelmingly derived from the EU development fund. So I think it's like budget is like six and five of it or so is from the main European development funds. So yeah. it's actually money that is for the benefit of the people there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so the critics say it's not aligned with the principles of international development cooperation, humanitarian systems, which uh, means neutrality, which means, uh, uh, you know, uh, being uh, aligned with local interests, uh, uh, ownership by local authorities of this uh, uh, project, uh, and so a set of uh, very precise uh, kind of uh, um, indicators. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's so clear that these are European interests that these are uh, European priorities which are imposed on local uh, population. But at the same time, we don't have to... Uh, well, we have to consider that local governments uh, have been profiting out of this. So it's not just European uh, authorities going to Niger or to uh, Senegal or to Nigeria and uh, saying, OK, guys, we're much more powerful than you. You need to do this. You, you need to uh, start uh, register, uh, registering fingerprints of people uh, at land borders so we know who these people are. And maybe in the future, we will be able to interconnect our databases with yours or to uh, cross-match data and see uh, whether uh, someone has exactly reconstructed the, uh, the migration movement of someone across Across uh, Africa before he tried to reach it in the European uh, uh, borders, uh, but uh, so it's not only this, uh, but it's only not Europe imposing their own priorities, but it's also local authorities trying to direct the, this European interest and to use it also in a way which is meaningful for them, which means attracting money, but uh, especially attracting. Uh, um, you know, uh, support uh, and uh, um, and one of the ways by which they can do this is to uh, direct money to local law enforcement uh, agencies because we all know that uh, there's a long history of military coups in Africa. Uh, there's a long history of uh, distrust be uh, um, between uh, uh, people in power and security forces. And uh, uh, when they're able to attract money 
external money to the police, to the gendarmerie, to uh, the military, well, that's a way to kind of uh, fill this gap a bit and saying, okay, I mean, uh, uh, military coups happened in the past, are still happening today, but what if uh, uh, the government is bringing you, is letting you uh, have this very lucrative deal to have helicopters, to have uh, uh, training, to have equipment, and also to have money, because there's also stories of corruption behind this, uh, 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 these issues, uh, these uh, big contracts for the military, there's uh, uh, also demand from Europe to increase uh, spending, military or security spending uh, at a general level. It's also business for the local uh, leaderships. Um, so we don't have to to overlook this part of the story. Uh, and it's, 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 um, just on that, in Niger, how is the human rights situation? Has it improved? would you say generally since 2015, since all these security forces have been equipped and empowered and trained, or would you say it's got worse? Or Yeah, taking the example of Niger, uh, so this, this huge European interest uh, from 2015, 16, specifically around migration, then today it's more around security in general, including migration and more counter-terrorism, uh, border control. Uh, lots of money, uh, hundreds of millions of euros invested uh, in, in Niger. Uh, and, uh, but basically, at the same time, we've seen a deterioration of the civic space, uh, of um, uh, freedom of speech, of freedom of assembly, of uh, uh, the possibility for activists to express themselves, uh, both in the, let's say, online uh, space on, on social media and also in the, in the public space. So there's been a restriction of uh, basic rights in Niger, for sure, over the past years, uh, more repressive policies put in place. And uh, of course, European donors have been closing their eyes a bit because uh, uh, Niger is, has become a crucial partner for uh, what uh, is, is dubbed as uh, stability in the Sahel, uh, which means uh, a lot of things and means nothing, basically, also in the end. Um, and uh, yeah, there were activists and journalists and bloggers arrested uh, over tweets, uh, over uh, uh, social media posts over articles. There were people judicially harassed, also including journalists, uh, uh, for their publications that were criticizing also governmental policies. Um, and uh, what local activists are saying most of the times is uh, we once had an idea of the Europe, uh, the European Union, uh, as our as a potential partner. Especially in the past, there were there was a military regime in Niger, and uh, there were times where repression, where I mean, repression was even much stronger than today. But with this new emphasis on migration and border control, uh, they perceive now the EU as a sort of enemy, as a sort of uh, actor which is complicit with the government in uh, in, in the repression of uh, and the reduction of civil. Uh, civil space and so also this is very important and uh, we've seen in i mean uh, in uh, what has happened in mali for example with the two military coups in the span of one year with the huge uh, street protests and 
and Europe uh, is seen somehow as, uh, uh, of course, very linked to French interests. Uh, and there is an old frustration and old uh, resentment towards France, but also uh, is uh, seen as uh, someone, an actor, which is imposing their own will, uh, which is also supporting a corrupt government. So um, uh, basically, that's also... Uh, what's happening, human rights, not only for the migrants, of course, human rights of migrants uh, uh, are much more at risk now in Niger, uh, but also human rights of uh, local citizens have been put uh, at risk. Uh, and uh, and uh, the EU uh, is not seen as a, as a friend by human rights defenders, by uh, even if there's the EU is still doing supporting the National Human Rights Commission, supporting some local uh, um, NGOs, but basically that's uh, that's nothing compared to what they are doing in terms of supporting the military, supporting the police, uh, supporting uh, the government also with budget, direct budget support, so injecting money into the budget of the state. And at the same time, you know, let's not forget, you also have like the US, um, agencies involved. You talked about Russian mercenaries before, Chinese investment as well. So it's not as if there's a lack of equipment or training for security forces there as well. This is just one of the things that like boggles the mind because even if you want to be as generous as you want to the European countries and say, okay, you know, you're concerned about migration, it's within your right to train as many security forces as you want as to abdicate all moral responsibility and like even if you know you're going to lead to human rights abuses but the long-term strategy just makes no sense because all that's going to do is fuel uh, corruption fuel human rights abuses fuel extremism and then fuel migration it just the strategy itself makes no sense whatsoever and um, it's just, yeah, like I said, boggles mind. Uh, back to your report on the Italian spending. How easy was it to like track the funds that you did? Well, tracking the uh, funds for what is called externalization, external migration policies is always difficult because it's a mix of uh, you know, security, of uh, uh, development, humanitarian assistance. This is uh, channeled in different ways. Uh, so basically, if you look at uh, development, uh, uh, there's this idea which is uh, rooted uh, now in uh, in EU policymakers of the root causes of addressing the root causes, uh, which actually it's uh, it's been contested and uh, by many scholars as well. Because uh, I mean, uh, on one side we can say that root co- the root co- the same root causes of migrations are the wrongdoings of uh, you know western companies which have huge interests like in uh, mineral resources in most countries in in africa for example uh, and uh, and this uh, so this is not going to the local population at all and also some in some cases it's a, a kind of uh, you know polluting the environment and uh, forcing people to flee but uh, uh, but then uh, I mean, uh, the fact that, uh, uh, you know, development studies prove that uh, it's not, there's not a univoc relation between uh, being more developed, let's say, and uh, uh, migrating less. So if uh, it might even be that if I have a bit more of money, I will 
bikini to migrate because I mean I want to it's an investment and uh, it, it costs money migrating so uh, but it can turn out to be a profitable investment for not only for myself for my old family community uh, so the desperately poor don't migrate you know it's, yeah. it's people with a bit of income a bit of support a bit of, who've got the capability to do it so the underlying assumption just isn't proven by fact whatsoever. yeah Yes, definitely. And then just to add something, you know, uh, what uh, we realized while working on this report is that uh, it's uh, most of the money was spent on border control. And most of the programs, the projects, even if they were shaped with different uh, uh, objectives, like presented, like this is an anti-trafficking project. This is a project to support the governance of migration uh, in uh, Libya and Tunisia and Egypt. Uh, uh, but actually, at the basis, there was an idea to that the real solution was to to control heavily controlled borders, and uh, which is a paradox because uh, you know uh, traffickers are, are you know created were born out of border control or out of uh, hard borders, uh, out of uh, you know uh, situations where people were. Uh, 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 where there were walls, where there were, you know, uh, it was really impossible to move on. And this is where actual traffickers uh, enter. And they might also be willing at some point, not just to bring you from A to B, but to exploit your situation and to uh, and to ask you for a lot of money, to ask you to do something for them, to ask you to sell drugs, to, uh, to force you into prostitution. And... Um, uh, so it's kind of uh, it's the paradox of you know uh, trying to block borders and using very expensive technologies, uh, especially in the Mediterranean Sea, but also uh, in uh, along migration routes uh, in in Africa. Uh, it's it's just uh, uh, you know selling a fake solution that uh, borders would uh, uh, would also be the 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 best tool against traffickers, which is completely untrue. I'm not saying that uh, you know, border controls might also be useful. There's actually bad people moving around. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, selling this as a solution uh, to stop the bad people, it's uh, when coming to migration, it's not true. It's not, uh, it's kind of, uh, uh, it's it's more a, uh, it's a war against migrants. It's not a war against smugglers, as the EU proclaimed it in 2015 with the agenda of migration and with the um, so. And this uh, it's been coming out if you look at the funding because most of the money from Italy uh, in this case. Uh, uh, but uh, I've been working in the past on European money to Nigeria, on European money to Niger, and uh, basically uh, most of these funds are going to um, for to increase border control and to support security forces and to um, to implement uh, forced returns of migrants or so-called voluntary terms, which sometimes are not completely voluntary, I would say, uh, to, you know, all a set of uh, um, 
of uh, interventions that are actually uh, trying to um, to remove people from uh, areas which are uh, closer to Europe to create a sort of buffer zone in northern uh, ah, in North Africa uh, where from which we are sure that migrants will not attempt the dangerous Mediterranean crossing, for example. Uh, and but, then, what yeah. proportion of that spending did you find went on providing legal and safe routes? Was it at all matching the border control expenditure? Or? Well, basically, we looked at Italy, uh, external migration spending in Africa and the Mediterranean Sea, from 2015 to 2020. Uh, so a very crucial moment for this type of spending where it was expanded all, all of a sudden. And 1% uh, of the total spending was devoted to creating legal channels uh, compared to about 50% devoted to border controls. And we are speaking about 1.3 billion euros uh, in total, uh, then some estimates are also a bit higher, but then it depends on the methodology we use to calculate this sum. Um, but yeah, there's, there's nothing. Uh, legal channels, uh, well, there's even in the new pact on migration uh, uh, of the European Union, there's a uh, you know, more emphasis on the talent partnership, on skilled migration, on uh, but practically, it's uh, it's very uh, you know it, European governments are really shy. Well, the pandemic might also have shown quite clearly what are the problems of this and what could be the the perspectives uh, if Europe is lacking from basic workers in different fields. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, uh, this uh, populist. Uh, discourse around migration is still quite strong everywhere in Europe, uh, even if we don't have the, you know, the migration news are not it in the, in the front pages of newspapers every day, like in 2015, but still, it's a very strong, uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah, topic for the, for the political debate. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't see it as coming quite shortly in, in the short run that uh, you know, legal pathways will have uh, 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 more resources and will be uh, also, you know, considered as a real uh, opportunity on both sides. Uh, uh, it's it's quite problematic. Yeah. So, with regards to the report, did you have any like recommendations that came out of it? Like any areas that you um, thought the EU needs to improve, or the Italian government needs to improve on? Mm, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, uh, it's important to to build what <laughs> uh, to re to actually build uh, try building what uh, uh, are called uh, what have been called by the uh, EU Commission equal partnerships. But uh, uh, yeah, what 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 does this mean in practice? Uh, that it's uh, you know also working with the local civil society and considering that in some countries which have uh, authoritarian regimes in Africa or semi-authoritarian regimes, uh, it's not enough to discuss with the government because it's not representative because they've been uh, coming to power uh, by you know uh, uh, untransparent elections and. Uh, uh, so you can't really 
as a European uh, donor, uh, you know, focused uh, only in working with the with the government. Uh, if you want to build a, a relationship which is uh, will will last um, and also will not fall against the you know uh, uh, the concurrence, the competition of other uh, of other actors like China or the uh, or Russia today or Turkey, for example. Um, so, well, basically, uh, the recommendation is to to get back to become also uh, a partner for what regards, uh, um, you know, expanding the civic space, uh, uh, liberties, civic um, uh, civil liberties, and uh, uh, at the same time for, uh, you know, for free speech, for, uh, um, so the idea is that Europe needs to, uh, to also try to address uh, local grievances somehow. I mean, uh, then at the same time, I would say uh, at a very general level, I'm I'm really, I feel that it's very difficult to kind of decolonize all this uh, type of interventions. And uh, now that the Sahel is a new... Uh, it's at the center of a new international, uh, you know, geopolitical competition, and uh, Europe feels they need, for example, they need to be there actually, and it's just not to lose ground to other actors. Uh, uh, so it's it's very complex. But uh, uh, in terms of the migration, uh, this uh, uh, you know, migration. Uh, um, uh, intervention in Africa uh, or migration spending, European migration spending in Africa, it must be more aligned with human rights because this is not only, uh, I mean, uh, an issue of respecting human rights as a, as a value, but also of kind of creating the base for some local uh, consensus of these uh, policies. Uh, and also, uh, at the same time, legal pathways have to be clearly expanded. Uh, and also, you know, uh, uh, development cooperation, which can, I'm, I'm quite often critical about development cooperation, uh, but uh, needs to be uh, no, addressed actually to fighting poverty or to, to creating opportunities for local communities and not to fighting uh, migrants, which are the same people that are looking for opportunities. And it's then at the same time, we have to recognize it's, uh, you know, uh, because if we uh, address a lot of money, uh, to you know, uh, returning people from uh, Libya, Niger, or uh, Mali, or Sudan to other countries, uh, so they can go back to their own countries of origin and not continue to travel to uh, North Africa and then potentially Europe. Then we are taking away much money that could be provided for uh, vital assistance to populations which are really need in uh, most areas in the Sahel where there is a conflict, where they don't have uh, access to, to basic uh, things like food and, uh, uh, and uh, water uh, and uh, education. Uh, 
so it's uh, yeah uh, i mean uh, then probably uh, uh, you know as a journalist i don't i don't really feel any to give any recommendation any potential solution to um uh, to governments uh, well of course uh, this is most more for you know uh, yeah uh, ngos and uh, uh, to do but uh, for example or civil organization and uh, activists and but yeah the, there's a lot the, there's there's many ways to to increase and one of the things that i i think it's quite important to recognize that uh, migration has been entering uh, uh, you know um, the diplomacy geopolitical uh, uh, negotiations over uh, you know relation between governments and states uh, as uh, one of the many aspects of this big game um, and it's important also to uh, to ask governments to be transparent about what they're doing and to also be transparent about uh, who's behind this, uh, uh, who's driving this, who's pushing this big spending on migration. Uh, like for in Italy, we have uh, historically an interest uh, on Libya. And this is also why, I mean, it's not just a geographical proximity, it's also why Italy is seen also from the European Union as a key actor and uh, uh, the EU is channeling funds through Italy um, uh, to reduce migration, to equip the Coast Guard and now much they're trying to invest much more, which is also uh, very untransparent uh, in, the, in southern Libya, kind of to seal the Sahara borders much more than what they did so far in Niger. Uh, but if you ask to have documents, if you ask to, if you want to understand exactly where this man is going, this is almost impossible. Okay. And, uh, I mean, so we, the, we tried it ourselves with. Um, I mean, we spent a year. We've got very fucking smart lawyers who can word very um, detailed and articulate access to documents requests. Who know all the agencies to get to, and then you end up in a backwards and forwards kind of fight between public agencies who are using public money for the supposed public good to get any information out of them. It's just unbelievable. So I think the basic, basic thing they could do is at least make this transparent about what's driving it, who the money's going to, how it's being used, and uh, what actual impact it's having, rather than just this black box of millions have been spent on something that's meant to be eight. But, you know, we just don't know. So, I mean, it's kind of scandalous that it takes journalists and people like us having to find this information yeah. out. Well, and I, I'm i sure, I mean, now the, the interest on migration has been somehow reducing. Well, of course, uh, I think like in the UK with the, with the channel situation and sometimes in Italy it gets back because politicians uh, like to use migration as a... Uh, as a weapon of consensus, but uh, but then uh, if you look at stories of migrants, if you look at stories of people on the move, if you look at how this has been changing, this this little happening uh, in the media, uh, except from some investigations which are you know exposing wrongdoings by uh, European agency Frontex or uh, exposing you know how mass surveillance tools are being uh, tested on migrants and refugees and the likes, which are really vital. But I, I think it's also vital uh, to to continue monitoring uh, 
the European spending out of Europe on migration because this money are just increasing. And this, what happened in the past years as a, a kind of a, a test uh, with the EU Trust Fund for Africa, other instruments that were redir redirected towards migration, um, then is happening uh, now and will happen in the next years in a more uh, you know, structured way. Uh, and uh, technologies and uh, and uh, surveillance tools, which uh, will have a, a much deeper impact, uh, and the idea of uh, also continuing to uh, export or to uh, you know um, pay for, uh, for example, databases in different countries in Africa to be implemented. It's also uh, you know uh, it's also it has been happening in the past in a quite. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes confused way. Now they're trying to kind of increase this because the idea is that uh, also stepping up the deportation machine of the European Union is important and we need more data on the people in Europe, but also in uh, countries of transit and origin uh, in order to be able to uh, repatriate them easily in order to, you know, then... Uh, lots of uh, way to you know to justify this uh, the spending, but basically then there's a there's a big push from uh, uh, law enforcement agencies in the EU and uh, uh, to to acquire more data to be able to access to more uh, personal data uh, in uh, in even in Africa and, uh, and this is also something to to look at. Uh, Significantly, yeah, definitely. Because it's kind of there's this kind of very um, nice and fuzzy idea of databases and having access to an identity, and it comes from remember like the standard development goals, this big agenda and push um, to kind of I think they were the Millennium Goals, um, and one of them was essentially that everyone should have access to an identity, and that is actually quite important because you know you can actually prove that you're a citizen, that like you can have access to certain rights, that you can vote and whatnot. So you need access to an identity. But then they've taken it a step further and said, oh, we're going to make it a biometric identity, which is not something that you need, you know? So oftentimes they've rushed to enable, to get everyone enrolled into these digital ID systems. And you suspect it's exactly like you say, it's because they want to be able to track who's moving across borders. And if you see, for example, you talked about the EU pressure on the law that criminalized migration in Niger, you can see there's articles in there that say if an uh, international agency uh, sends a data request to prove someone's citizenship that might be Nigerian, that the Nigerian authorities should have to then verify them. And that's very much seems conducive towards this, basically implementing deportations from Europe. Uh, so you can see how these big digital ID systems are essentially being funneled um, and uh, finance for those reasons yeah yeah definitely definitely and then uh well then also this clearly seems like an example of uh, yeah european priority creating problems in africa uh, because i mean uh, if uh, there's not an existing uh, and working civil status system which provides everybody at birth with a just document uh, which allows you to go to school as a kid to you know to just prove your identity uh, then why 
do the same country need uh, uh, you know a biometric voting system where you scan the iris uh, uh, and why does is it needed uh, if uh, actually then it's uh, you know, uh, the, the information are record. The information is recorded, but then uh, it's not used to vote. It doesn't uh, it doesn't lead to a fair vote, uh, transparent vote, because there's always problems. So it's there's a further push, and uh, what will happen in the next years? Probably, uh, I feel uh, yeah, there's an interest by advocacy groups uh, rights groups uh, in europe and also in africa and i i say i would say also what i think is one of the, the important issues is to create uh, alliances to create relations and to uh, because yeah as let's say as european citizens uh, we are interested in how our money uh, is being spent uh, and what's the impact? Uh, then uh, people in Africa, there are activists, there are journalists, uh, there are uh, um, yeah, you know local uh, groups working on these issues, which uh, are also interested on the practical impact they're seeing on their on their community. And uh, it's important to you know to to build these uh, alliances, also to to avoid uh, this continuous uh, you know european gaze uh, and interest and uh, avoid uh, even on our side to uh, to fall on the same uh, trap of uh, you know uh, having our thoughts in mind and say well this is crucial for for africa but what people uh, uh, you know what uh, is is this important even for a journalist in africa to investigate these issues or it's more important to look at other things so um, i think it's uh, yeah it's it's vital to to create uh, relationships uh, to create uh, um, connections, you know, to tackle this, uh, to and also to effectively, uh, you know, um, uh, monitor what is what is going on with the, with the European money in uh, uh, in this country, because uh, it, and this is for sure. I mean, uh, interesting for uh, in my in my experience uh, for on both sides of the Mediterranean. Let's say, um, yeah. So. Uh, I think this is because we have a privilege uh, that we can travel, uh, we can access most places uh, in, in Africa, even some places have become quite dangerous over the past years. But uh, I mean, it's not the same for our uh, friends, colleagues, uh, journalists, activists, uh, uh, community organizers uh, in Africa. Most of the times they find it very difficult to, to travel to Europe. Uh, but it's important to use this privilege, well, also to try to discuss about this yeah. and to use it in a, in a good way, which is also, you know, uh, you know supporting actually and uh, creating uh, links uh, and uh, relations locally. So you mentioned um, drones earlier on um, and the involvement of a lot of companies that actually a lot of this money that's being provided is staying inside European actors. Could you maybe just talk a bit more about what kind of technology you're seeing and what kind of companies or actors this money is going towards? Yeah, well, uh, well, coming to the Mediterranean Sea, of course, it's uh, a different set of uh, surveillance uh, technologies which are basically connected to 
uh, to a maritime presence, uh, military presence, basically of uh, well, Italian, uh, the Italian Navy, and uh, then a Frontex operation. And uh, uh, now they're everybody, all these actors are using. Uh, uh, then there's also UNAV format, which is a European Union uh, uh, military. Uh, uh, military mission, uh, security mission uh, in in the Central Mediterranean Sea, uh, and all these actors are using drones, but also they're using a kind of systems to analyze data and to transfer data between them uh, in a quite fast way, uh, which have been uh, you know there's also uh, research and development projects funded by the EU under uh, pro programs like Horizon 2020, which have been tested in some in uh, in the Central Mediterranean. Um, and uh, at the same time, so this well, uh, they're using satellites, imageries, and sensors to, uh, you know, to be able to spot boats uh, uh, at a very early stage, uh, and to and to be able to alert uh, the Libyan Coast Guard or uh, Libyan uh, or the Libyan Navy in order to intervene and bring people back. Uh, basically, even if the, in many cases we know that this is legal and uh, uh, lawyers and uh, are also saying and um, uh, activists that uh, this is completely legal because actually uh, Libya can't be considered as a safe uh, port, as a safe zone. Um, uh, so it's not aligned with the international norms. Uh, so, uh, Can you explain that? What, what's happening in Libya at the moment? See, well, uh, we are having, uh, well, basically, the, even if we are in a moment where the now 10-year-old 10 conflict in Libya is kind of, uh, you know, reduced, uh, actually, there's a process of sort of national reconciliation between different uh, bodies uh, and governments and militias, which were, uh, you know, detaining power of different uh, areas and regions of Libya. And there is an attempt uh, somehow internationally by the so-called international community, but also by different actors in Libya to push uh, for uh, elections in December. Uh, but basically, if we look at the condition of uh, people passing off migrants and refugees, uh, uh, it's still the same. Uh, I mean, uh, some detention centers have been closed, but basically there's no way for people to be uh, uh, to regularize their presence in Libya. And what's happening is that uh, uh, migrant refugees are routinely brought to detention centers where they are tortured, where they are uh, enslaved, where they are sold, where they are uh, uh, maltreated in different ways, where there are uh, uh, conditions that have been denounced by the UN and everybody else, so basically, uh, as uh, amounting potentially also to, uh, you know, to international war crimes in some cases, to, uh, you know, to uh, different types of, uh, of crimes. Uh, so you're then intercepting people in the Mediterranean with drones or aircraft or satellites and then tipping off the Libyan authorities. That's basically what you're sending them to. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the old interception system, 
was kind of refined uh, since 2017. And uh, and Italy had a clear had a, had a crucial role in this because uh, uh, at the time uh, you know in keeping and coordinating and still today uh, it sounds quite uh, shocking to know that uh, uh, Italian uh, navy vessels are docked in Tripoli in Libya and they are uh, part of the interception system uh, information uh, you know they all. Uh, Maritime Rescue Coordination Center, which was created in, in Libya uh, in 2018, if I'm not wrong, uh, officially was created, was actually uh, guided and built by Italy, by Italian uh, government actors. And still today, they're having a, a crucial role in this. I mean, it's uh, uh, so... Uh, it's uh, it's something which uh, uh, you know the, the Italian role in uh, given their prior uh, relations with Libya in this interception system which has been refined over the past years is uh, is really is really central and um, yeah and uh, yeah basically people are uh, spotted by drones by airplanes uh, and immediately now there's a communication system uh, between uh, Frontex, uh, UNAV for MED, uh, the Italian Navy and other actors in the, in the Central Mediterranean Sea to report uh, the position of these uh, uh, dinghies or uh, crowded uh, wooden boats uh, to uh, authorities in Libya so they can intervene and also to support all this uh, uh, this so-called rescue activity uh, and which actually brings people back to to detention and to torture uh, but um, yeah so this is a, a part of these technologies are devoted to this uh, increased control of uh, the Mediterranean Sea uh, which means drones, which means, uh, uh, yeah, of course, you know, it's just airplanes and vessels, and uh, in, but also the technologies which is adopted by uh, by uh, security agencies uh, in order to exchange data to in uh, in a very quick time uh, with different actors at the same time uh, to have a sort of uh, complete view of what is happening in the, uh, from the Libyan coasts up to international waters in the Mediterranean. Um, and uh, yeah, then there are, uh, if we look at technologies, there are technologies uh, provided to local governments in different countries, which are basically technologies to, um, you know, to register people, to register people's biometric information at, uh, at border points in airports and in, uh, at land borders. Uh, then, um, and this, uh, this is really kind of, uh, it's not an expensive technology, but it's, uh, it's quite important as well, uh, even if looking at the money, it's not so big, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, and this uh, connects with also all sorts of databases, basically, which have been adopted by countries in Africa, uh, for example, uh, you know, voting uh, the systems which adopts biometric uh, uh, documents and biometric databases, but also criminal databases. 
Um, and there are all sorts of databases, like uh, as an example, there's a criminal database that involves uh, most West African countries, the uh, West Africa Police Information System, but then, uh, which has been uh, a project of the EU uh, and the Interpol and then other actors uh, uh, for the past 10 years or so. Uh, and it, it keeps going going. It keeps being refunded, even if most countries are not actually adopting it. They're very slow in adopting it. Uh, but the idea is, okay, we just need time and uh, uh, little by little, the system will be adopted, will be put in place and we will use other uh, ways to convince local authorities actually to uh, to adopt it uh, and to install uh, the you know workstations and all the uh, the practical uh, you know tools to make it work and then there is like the G5 side which is this uh, uh, five country uh, group uh, organization created in 2014 which uh, was main activities to having this uh, military coordination center between five countries in the Sahel it's been heavily funded by the European Union uh, the EU is the main donor of this uh, uh, program which is really opaque uh, and it's uh, it's basically was supposed to be a coordination program so uh, the military of Niger can uh, do operation uh, joint operation with the military of Mali since uh, most uh, jihadist activities is between the borders of these two countries so they need to coordinate but uh, but then they have a police component as well, and they have uh, uh, all sorts of systems to, uh, you know, to to record information and share information between themselves, and uh, uh, which also adds up to other databases. So kind of there's a rush to uh, to access, uh, record, and store data uh, in a context where most of these countries don't have a proper, uh, you know, uh, privacy data protection and uh, law and uh, system uh, where they have a data protection authority, uh, but uh, which is usually underfunded, not independent, uh, which is not, uh, well, I mean, we can say the same about Italy, but most countries in Europe probably, but uh, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's clearly kind of has been put in place also to comply with some European requests, but then uh, uh, practically, uh, yeah, they don't have a, a real uh, over, oversight and there is, there's no uh, mechanism of monitoring uh, exactly what is going on. And uh, um, so, yeah, I mean, this happens in a place where uh, clearly for, uh, for citizens and people and migrants and refugees passing at the land borders, uh, it's the worst, uh, the, 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 the least of problems to being recorded, even if, I mean, you could be legitimately uh, afraid of what will happen with your data because uh, uh, everybody knows this is part of a bigger surveillance uh, scheme and also some uh, refugee on the move, which is not listening to to our talks and which is not reading a privacy international website or uh, international media uh, probably and I mean is aware that uh, it's uh, you know uh, in 
that all these systems are operating against him, basically. Uh, then I would say there's also an issue with the, uh, you know, humanitarian uh, operations and how much they rely on biometric uh, 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 biometric information, uh, which is also sold as a tool to, uh, you know, to avoid, uh, uh, you know, scams, to avoid uh, that uh, people who are not uh, who are not in need can access to humanitarian aid uh, and the likes. But actually, it's also a way to, you know, to, to control people. And it's, it's problematic because sometimes humanitarian agencies are providing local governments, local authoritarian repressive governments with tools to, uh, with, you know, tools to produce uh, uh, documents for refugees, the biometric documents for refugees, for example. And, uh, and then... Uh, where are this information going and uh, what if the you know any uh, other actor wants to access this information uh, uh, like you know the the CIA or the FBI wants to have information on refugees in northern Nigeria uh, because it's an area where uh, extremist groups are operating and uh, well uh, even if they don't have any suspect that this people is linked, this uh, someone could be linked. But uh, uh, yeah, so it's it's problematic because uh, yeah, the there could be data breaches quite easily. There could be also data, uh, you know, um, it's it's com it's really difficult. To, I would say impossible for people to know how the, their personal data are being used uh, with accessing them. Uh, then, yeah, I would say, for example, uh, if you look at technologies, uh, uh, wiretapping interception technologies also have been uh, provided to, uh, to countries, uh, to, especially to counter uh, migration, counter trafficking, in uh, in the Sahel and uh, in um, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa as a whole, uh, like there's a new uh, anti-smuggling center uh, which has been opened in Khartoum in Sudan, for example, which aims at uh, coordinating uh, on behalf of the African Union uh, different uh, you know smug anti-smuggling policies, but. Uh, even there, uh, it has been funded by the EU and managed by uh, the German Cooperation Agency. Uh, and one can, they will have also access to data. They will uh, develop their own, well, use their own technologies. And uh, so uh, there's also this uh, support to uh, local authorities uh, policing. Uh, uh, you know, uh, migration and policing, also the web, for example, and uh, yeah, um, um, also drones for local police and, for example, especially border police, custom authorities, uh, they've been provided with drones. Uh, then there's a problem in providing uh, lethal equipment uh, uh, to security forces, uh, but. Uh, uh, still, uh, a lot of equipment has been provided, but now with the new African peace facility, this kind of would be bypassed because the uh, EU will be able also to uh, provide little equipment uh, to some their uh, partners in Africa. Um, so it's... Uh, 
yeah, it's it's a set of uh, basically uh, police uh, and uh, technologies for police and security forces to control borders, to monitor people, to record uh, personal data. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, which is which accompanies probably if you uh, if you look, I mean, it's uh, uh, there are some projects which are really expensive in terms of spending uh, is really high. Of course, if you need to buy a a vessel for the navy and to make it work for years, it's uh, hundreds of million of euros. Uh, while if you buy a biometric uh, system with the 10 uh, workstations uh, to put at the main border posts, uh, it's not so expensive in the end, but uh, still it's uh, it's very important. And that's why European donors are really continuing to, to fund this type of projects. Uh, then, of course, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's grasp, you know, what's, uh, what will happen in the future. It looks like something is preparing. There's a race for personal data and Europe wants to have their eyes on something. Uh, so to have good collaboration with local uh, uh, police authorities, with local military when possible, with uh, um, so in order that once there's a, tools are set up once these uh, technologies have, have actually been adopted and are working, then uh, at one point they will be able to say, okay, why don't we, you know, make a, a system uh, so that we are able to connect the uh, Western Africa information system with the Europol information system or to make them, uh, you know, uh, uh, to, to create a possibility to... Uh, to match uh, and to to search for uh, for information uh, in on, in both databases and that someone somewhere at least could access to both or some you know software could can match uh, information in order to see whether uh, uh, a Nigerian uh, was expelled from uh, Sweden uh, before and then it got back and arrived in France and then uh, uh, whatever. And then is actually a Nigerian, so we don't need uh, uh, that the Nigerian embassy in France cooperates with us in identifying the person. But well, there's a database, there's a fingerprint, there's, uh, just, let's remove him. 100%. Yeah. Uh, like a global race for African data, eh? just yeah. funneling more into it. And I mean, it's it's expl ex explicit now in the Balkans, for example, where they're funding the development of the nationwide biometric ID systems in the countries, uh, specifically to become what they call interoperable with mm -hmm. EU systems. So basically, then they'll be able to exchange the data really easily for things like uh, deportations or just to find out who's going through border crossings. And then oftentimes, like when we've kind of communicated with the commission agencies about this, they'll say things like, we've worked to ensure that there's a sufficient legal framework, and also we won't have access to this data. So you're kind of like thinking, oh, that's okay then. But the thing is, the power imbalance is just so great that they've got things like, we could cut off that aid, we could cut off your security aid, 
and also we could cut off your visa access if you don't give us data on request. And that's like an explicit EU policy now that like they'll use visa access of like the elites within these countries who obviously want to be able to continue traveling to Europe as a means of leverage to make sure that these agencies, once they're equipped with the um, uh, databases and with biometric tools, will be able to provide that data to European agencies upon request. So they have all these different sources of leverage, even if they're not directly accessing it, so to say. And as you say, like just the thing that this idea that, um, you know, we've worked to make sure that there's laws in place that will provide sufficient safeguards. As you say, across the EU, the data protection regime just isn't enforced well at all. These European agencies are just not providing sufficient protections to make sure that even the European um, data protection regulations are well enforced. So what is to stop? So, for example, the data that's um, collected and then used to make sure people are verified during election processes being accessed by the police or by military or internal security forces. So in a context where, as you said, people are being arrested, their online communications are being spied on, the risk is just incredible. And it just seems like a very fucking irresponsible thing to be financing towards. So just kind of taking a step back from that, you obviously work as a freelance journalist. Um, you do these like absolutely in-depth investigations and so on. How, how do you publicize them in an age where there's so much competition for attention? You have the attention economy, you have people on social media. There's so many things to do, I think, um, be concerned about. How do you publicize your work? Well, yeah, that's that's an issue. I mean, uh, of course, uh, on one side, social media can be a platform for visibility, but uh, but it's also, I mean, ad additional, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, part of the work which I don't think necessarily freelance journalists are supposed to to do and are able to do also, uh, actually, and. Uh, so basically, yeah, I've been using social media for, you know, promoting my job, but, it, but, but I felt somehow this is something that needs to be tackled. And, uh, um, and I feel quite bad when uh, I, I hear or read like uh, journalist association, journalist trade unions in Italy, for example, that are promoting... Uh, training courses to help you manage your social media because it's really kind of fragmenting uh, we're already working in a market which is completely trying to isolate us so this is for the okay you need to be uh, you are uh, you know an individual businessman you need to take care of this uh, your activity social media are important i mean it has worked for many people but i think as a model for me and I see this for lots of colleagues, it's problematic because it takes away lots of your time if you want to do it properly. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then it's also, I mean, someone might just be willing to focus on what we are working on, which is already uh, kind of really absorbing. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't have a solution, but I think that's... Uh, uh you know to this can feed this uh, idea of competition for uh, limited resources uh, in the in the media market and i feel like as freelance journalists we are uh, producing the bulk of investigative journalism today in the world 
if we take away a few uh, you know big media outlets who have their own investigative unit but most of the time even in those cases uh, it's freelance journalists providing contact to big media uh, and uh, and that's uh, because yeah it's impossible to reach out and to follow for like six months, one year, a story for maybe one single publication for someone who's working inside a newspaper uh, or to really dig in one area to to travel a lot, for example, when needed. Uh, so I think there's a crucial role of freelance journalists uh, in, uh, in the media today all over the world. And it's important to kind of, for me to take a step back from this uh, overexposition on social media, which is also kind of uh, seen as a competition from some visibility space uh, and uh, try to create connections between us uh, to create, uh, you know, to make for some sort of cooperation rather than competition. And uh, also because it makes a lot of sense in terms of what we can access of uh, how we can work and uh, and it's a way also to for me to tackle uh, exploitative uh, forms of uh, of work which are happening uh, uh, well probably in, i'm not sure about what is happening in the uk for example but for sure in southern mediterranean in southern europe uh, it's the way like freelance journalists are surviving it's uh, you know bringing together lots of things lots of jobs and trying to to survive out of this so um and being underpaid uh, all the time so it's uh it's kind of really vital to you know to to create some ways to uh, also to avoid competition and also to uh, I would say go out of this social media trap, which social media can be useful, but uh, find also different ways to to access the public. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm uh, with with some colleagues in Italy. We created a collective of freelance journalists and they, one of the ideas was to also uh, you know showcase our work without uh, having to have our own personal page uh, just saying okay i'm uh, Giacomo. i published this beautiful investigation you have to read it please share a lot because <laughs> uh, at least because the editor just uh, forgot completely about me and uh, i'm badly paid but at least i have uh, 200 likes <laughs> on facebook so well it just seems so like i can imagine just absolutely hating the world if i've you know, gone through this effort, trying like done long form investigative journalism, loads of travel, spoken to people to then try and package that up into a tweet to make sure people click on it so that they engage, so they create more data for billionaires, essentially. I would just feel like, oh my God, so disheartened, man. And then I guess there must be a pressure for freelance journalists nowadays to build a following because I guess yeah. from an editor's point of view, the more you have, then the more marketable you are, the more clicks you're going to get, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And well, then I think it's it's for every for someone can work. Then, uh, but I don't think it. We need to see this as a model uh, because there are very good individual players that can uh, you know use the freelancing opportunity to kind of uh, expose their great work. But at the same time, I think there's 
uh, we need to put much more value on on collaboration uh, as a way to achieve more uh, uh, to expose more you know bad things happening and also good things <laughs> hopefully sometimes and uh, and i think this is you know uh, it, it's really important to you know to do and i've been experimenting this and uh, i know really talented journalists who are basically not active on social media but are producing some of the best reporting around uh, but yeah then i see of course uh, my my friends who are not journalists but just want to get informed and use instagram or whatever mm-hmm. they i mean sometimes i criticize them i say okay look this guy is really he understood how the, <laughs> the system is working he has lots of followers but then uh, uh you know well uh it's uh, i mean i'm a bit critical uh, towards uh native uh, social media journalists uh, when uh, it's leading to you know kind of increasing this mechanism yeah but i also understand that uh, in um, you know everybody it's where people are unfortunately it's where people like me we have to it's unbelievable that so many people understand the harms yet we still have to kind of retract by it almost because it's where you get so much information so much yeah, yeah. It's, it's unbelievable we've not found a viable alternative even though they do exist like technically there are like alternatives out there it's just the more people they've got on it the more we're trapped by it it's bad yeah well overall if we want to i don't know if this has any sense but what i've been trying to do recently is if we want to uh, as journalists to tackle also surveillance and misuse of our personal data and data in general well it's really important to you know to have this connections between uh, different uh, platforms actors between journalists and uh, activists and uh, advocacy groups and uh, um and uh yeah and you know and trying to uh yeah to also to to reflect and on how we work in uh, uh as uh kind of white privileged guys uh, traveling uh, the world and how we uh, we work when we have a privilege to go to countries in africa for example and how we uh we also collaborate with local colleagues uh, and uh um so i think these are these issues are really important for journalism in the, in the upcoming years and but also uh, we need to you know to not be necessarily in a rush to get to the you know to the revelation and to uh but uh, uh uh, and you know and to have the the best out of our investigation which is important but also to create uh, good methodologies on how to reach there because i think this will would last for a longer period and uh, uh if we have relations if we have uh, connections in in different places if we uh we can work and we can also try from uh to you know to to tackle a bit these uh, inequalities and for example i would love to see my colleagues from 
West Africa report on migration in Europe. And this seems impossible. I mean, having, uh, I don't know, a Guinean or a Ivorian journalist uh, uh, going to report on the condition of uh, uh, migrants uh, who are exploited in, uh, as a cheap uh, labor force in southern Italy in agriculture. That would be really important for me. And while on my side, basically, I can go to the Ivory Coast uh, with yeah, spending money. And uh, it's not so easy necessarily, but yeah, I can I can access to some uh, grant opportunities, to some funding. Uh, uh, I can, uh, which are not there basically for uh, colleagues, uh, in, uh, in most of the world, uh, so that's a lucky part of also of being uh, a European citizen. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, it's. Uh, Is it so? Like, are like uh, journalism grants available to people outside of Europe generally, um, like in less developed countries, or are the majority yeah, of the granting towards well developed yeah, countries? Yeah. Yeah, there are, but I would say compared to, you know, compared to like European journalism grants, it's like small things like grant to, and, and well, as a European journalist, uh, when we, when we uh, like try accessing a grant, apply for a grant, we can also include uh, colleagues in, in countries in Africa and do a, collaboration uh, and i think that's also that's also important when when possible i mean uh, and also now that there's an opportunity for the pandemic uh, which is also restricting our movement still now uh, to kind of give more value to local uh, journalists uh, in different areas i mean uh, if it has become quite expensive and tiring and I need to test multiple times if I want to go to uh, whatever country in Africa, uh, then why can't I work with a local reporter who knows the country, the language, the, everything much better than I do. And uh, it's not just journalism, it's obviously it's advocacy as well. I mean, we're an NGO based in London. We don't know like what's going on in Niger, like it should be those agencies, those civil society agencies who are working on these issues, who are granted towards it, who have the expertise um, and the skills to be able to do it. So it's very important that essentially, I mean, mass sectors as colonized, I think mm. it comes from that tradition probably as much as journalism does. So certainly yeah. that's guilty of it as well. That was our last episode. Next week, TechPill will be back. Goodbye and thanks for listening. You can find out more about our guests and their work in the description or on our website, pvcy.org forward slash borderpill.